Welcome to The Things We Say. I'm Sheldon. And I'm Nate. This is a topical podcast where the topics are chosen at random. Sometimes they will be profound, and sometimes they will be stupid. But no matter what, we have a lot to say about them. We are known for the things we do. We become the things we think. We live the things we believe. These are the things we say. After a long hiatus in which we enjoyed many Indiana Jones movies, yes. we are back yes. on the podcast. We are. With Nelson. I also watched Indiana Jones <laughs> since the last time I heard your podcast. Are you serious? Which ones? Uh, all of them with my kids. Does that include the fourth one? With your kids? Well, that would, the that, child that sacrifice would be one? In all. Yeah. How did they deal with that? Um, my daughter understood the context of these are the bad guys. Your kids are <laughs> fairly young. Yeah, no, they loved it. My yeah. wife, my my daughter loves, as she calls them, ad- adventure movies. Nice yeah. adventure movies. Nice. So I'm I'm curious now, a little bit of distance from this, I have to ask, what was your actual impression of the Indiana Jones films? And I would all I obviously like to know which one you preferred of the three that you saw. I so, think the last one we watched was the best one. The Last Crusade. Yes, I would that agree. That was the best one. I I amended my initial statement. My the- initial statement was Raiders was the best, and I like Raiders a lot, but I do think. There's something about the dynamic that Sean Connery and Harrison Ford have in that movie that just makes it right. gold. But that movie does not work without Raiders. Absolutely. Like, you have to watch that after you've seen Raiders. Raiders, I think, has the better nostalgia value. Yes. But but uh, Last Crusade is the better movie. Uh, and I know that a lot of people have hate for the Crystal Skull, but I think it's still better than Temple of Doom. I could get behind that. <laughs> I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah. We've only it's seen good. three. It's good. I'll pl- I'll play it for you, begrudgingly, okay. but I'll play it for you. So I, yeah, Nate was not going to show me that one. So I will. The, so this is. I'm going to make my case for why, temp. Uh, sorry, Chris, Ken, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is good. Okay. Okay. Um, these movies are based off of Pulp Fiction, not the movie. The right. The genre. The, the genre. Yeah. Uh, and the dime novel the, genre. Yeah, exactly. Which uh, George Lucas is a big fan of. Yes. And the original trilogy is based is set in the 40s, I think. 30s. The 30s. And the Pulp Fiction novels of the 30s, the bad guys were the Nazis, and everything revolved around the occult. Yeah. Right? And then Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is set in the 50s, and the Pulp Fiction novels of that time were the bad guys are the communists, and everything's aliens. Yes. Yeah. So if he hadn't gone... Aliens. In that direction, it would it it would have been dishonest yeah. to the genre. My my, I don't want to give too much away since Sheldon hasn't no, seen okay. this. But my issue with Crystal Skull is the same issue that I take with, um, with Temple of Doom. Mm-hmm. And Temple of Doom is absolutely my least favorite. Yeah, there bad. are moments that I think are hilarious. Yeah, like I love Short Round. The character of Short Round is a ton of fun. It's by far the most racist of the four movies. Also true. <laughs> Also true. Oh dear. But short round, short round is my f- is uh, I love the He's character great. short round. Dr. He's Jones. great. Yeah. However, everything about Indy is just wrong. The mm-hmm. character of Indy is off. I agree. Who he is as a person, what he's trying to do, yep. everything about him is off. And I feel that very much the same way in Crystal Skull. Mm-hmm. There are elements of him that are just not that are more like the the uh, Temple of Doom, Indiana Jones. Yeah. That I'm going like. Why? Why would you have regressed? Yeah, was 
coming forward into the Crystal Skull. I always movie. forget the chronology. Temple of Doom is technically ta- a prequel. Takes place before. Man, does he like making prequels? I know it's so Takes stupid. place before. And, now, and, and if you give it that context, it is kind of better because he makes has a more sense. Arc, but totally. still, it's a bad. And I movie. and I and I heard somebody make the argument that if you watch temple first yeah as the first movie and then go raiders you see a nice progression but i would also argue if you watch temple first you're not going to watch Raiders. any of the others that's very (laughs) true but i i literally i remember the moment that i knew that crystal skull was going to disappoint me Mm -hmm. they're doing the opening scene and they always do the mountain yeah and every and it's the C- the gopher hole with the CGI gopher. Yeah. And I literally said out loud when the CGI gopher popped up, I went, oh, crap. Yep. That was my absolute first reaction. <laughs> and again, it was not terrible. And I have not watched it recently. Yeah. I, I need to give it another fair shake. But there were a lot of things. I've just decided that every other Indiana Jones movie is not great. So if they bring out a fifth one, yeah. I, I feel that it will be good. Well, so, so here's the other thing with Indiana Jones that I think that they've really, <laughs> really not nailed yes which is he he being george lucas created the character of indiana jones to be similar to the cinematic version of james bond yeah where any actor could play it and it didn't matter right yeah so given that context who would you cast for the next indiana jones oh i would absolutely um cast um Oh, why am I not thinking of his name? I'm confusing him with Chris Pine. I was going to do Chris Pratt. Yes, Chris Pratt. I think I'd go with Oprah Winfrey, but that's just because I'm not racist and sexist like you guys. <laughs> I will strike you with something. <laughs> we uh, did discuss this. And I forgot we both about said that. Chris Pratt, and I forgot. Was this that on, this was on air? Nelson joke. It was. No. It was I'm, after. I'm yeah, it was after. Okay, but yeah. I'm I got sorry. You twice. I'm, we're stealing your right. thunder. So I'm, I'm kind no, of curious, I, like your your take on him. So the as far as like in. Indiana Jones versus Star Wars, which is how you put sure. it to me. Yeah, that give me you that. like Indiana Jones better than Star Wars. I do. I would say that I like Star Wars better than Indiana Jones. Yeah, that's fine. And Why? The reason for that is I feel like Lucas took more time with it mm. in that he developed a whole entire universe. And that is one of my big problems with Star Wars is that the universe is so huge and the story is so small. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, it's super it follows it follows a very inbred set of characters yeah and it's quite literally i know and it's troubling <laughs> how small the story is and how big the universe is which is but why the mandalorian is I, awesome yes agreed. exactly it's the star wars we but deserve that's in the world that he built in star wars yeah, from sure. the very beginning and you're like from the from the jump in star wars you're like i'm in in a complete separate world mm-hmm. from the jump in indiana jones you're like ah oh, this is a hero movie yeah like this sure. is in the vein of superhero movies like, totally he's just a a folksy superhero and he's he's gonna go find something and it's gonna there's a lot of and it's always things. a MacGuffin. Yeah. it doesn't yeah. actually like, matter we're gonna we're though. gonna try and find something and there's a lot of traps between here and there but indy's gonna figure it out and yeah. it's just a matter of sitting back if and he can't outsmart it. them he'll outfist them yeah. Right. And and it's in that way it's more like bubblegum type movie and it yeah. it feels good. It's fun to sit mm-hmm. there and watch it and yeah. They're definitely lighter than the Star Wars movies too. Sure. Until right. until you get to um Last Crusade. Last Crusade has some heavier like real relational elements to it, yeah. but they're definitely lighter. But there there are I feel like 
in Star Wars, yes, there's plot holes in Star Wars, and some of them are quite large. But in Indiana Huge. Jones, like you could drive semi trucks through a lot of the plot sure, holes. Totally. And but I'm that's like, also this the is genre. not how planes work. This is not how boats work. And just because <laughs> you get into a room that's collapsing and meant to collapse and yeah. meant to squish the people inside, just because there's a lever to start it doesn't mean there's emergency release <laughs> lever on the outside. It's not how I would build a room to kill people. Right. Like well, you need to. What if you accidentally get tra trapped in your own murder room? You need safety protocols. That's right. And what is OSHA that approved murder room? Having a friend stand outside and be like, "Hey, I'm dying in here." Lockout, tagout. Right. Yeah. It's just the yeah. worst. Like I'm. Like, uh, can I just say too? That is not a foregone conclusion. When the room is collapsing, I pushed a lever in here. So clearly, there's another there's an lever. Emergency lever like yeah. that bothered me what here's but, my th well and again most and, and so, of most so of temple me, of doom like, bothers me like i get i get that the acting was solid in a lot of it and for its time it was it was good but we've had so many superhero movies now and i totally. feel like i feel like for sure christopher nolan's uh batman and some of that stuff has really changed superhero mm -hmm. movies yeah. and superhero movies themselves have gotten much better sure yeah. Like, I think we've overdone the dark brooding character a little yeah. much since right. Batman. Like, Superman is not a dark brooding character, but they've no. made him that. No, yeah. he's a Boy Scout. Right. He is a Boy he's Scout. He's a Boy Scout, yeah. and he's like, oh, Americana. Woo! <laughs> you know? yeah. Captain like, America's a better Boy Scout, but they're the same character. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Only Cap's cooler. Um, Way cooler. Because so he's not, like, a cosmic god. Yes. I want to make a case for why you're wrong. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Let's hear it. So... I'm a generally Just not I'm take generally up a neutral. Too much time you're, you're, we're <laughs> fine. You're correct that uh, Star Wars is a bigger world than Indiana Jones. Um, I would say the scope of the scope and scale of the stories are about equal, right? Indiana Jones really? revolves around the same group of people every time. Um, however, uh, but his world the, is just our world. Yeah. Uh, well, a little bit more occult, but yeah. 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 Um, I would argue, though, that the reason Indiana Jones is better is because even though it's the same director, he clearly w it was more polished. Um, Star Wars is poorly written, poorly acted, poorly directed. And the only reason that they um, make such a splash each time, uh, and actually this recent trilogy I would exclude from that, is the special effects are always incredible for their time, mm -hmm. but date themselves in 10 years. The Mandalorian is much better... Star Wars because it focuses on the world a lot better. It's well written, well acted, well directed, uh, and the special effects are whatever. Um, but the reason it Star doesn't rely on special effects to get the job done. That's right. And the original Star Wars trilogy, the the prequel trilogy as well, I would say is as good in that it's poorly written, poorly directed, poorly acted, and the special effects are incredible for their time. Now, I would agree with you on Star Wars and the prequels. Mm -hmm. I would not agree with you on Empire and Jedi. I think I think the writing, uh, when you had Kasdan in there doing the actual screenplay, mm -hmm. and you took a lot of the directorial and and creative control away from George Lucas, he still you know did the initial mock up and and let it roll. I don't think Lucas is a good storyteller. He's no. a phenomenal concept man, and he's yeah. an incredible innovator. Yep, he is not a, a a writer. He is not a director. Right. If you ever want to hear about it, just li watch a behind the scenes of the very first Star Wars film. Mm -hmm. And they always talk about, yeah, George would just always say, you know, faster, more intense. That was his direction. That was his direction. Faster, more intense. Let's do it again. Faster, more intense. And we look at that now. You watch A New Hope now, and it is a slog. It's but awful. my dad saw it in theaters when it came out, and he said yeah. it was breakneck pace. Yeah. 
And so apparently yeah. they took his directing cues yeah. cuz But <laughs> I but I think I think that I think that Empire and Jedi are the crown jewels of the Star Wars franchise in the in the sense of writing and acting as well. Yeah, my my personal favorite's uh, the Clone Wars. Really? No. <laughs> I was going to say was it the sand no, was it bad. the sand quote was that was <laughs> Yeah, that? I that's... hate sand. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really like the part where he went and killed all those people. <laughs> yes. And then they didn't show any of it. Yeah. <laughs> um Yes, I I my biggest beef with the Indiana Jones films is that Harrison Ford was Indiana Jones. Oh yeah, I agree. I think that that man doesn't like being in movies. No, and, <laughs> but I think that the original casting choice. Of oh, I don't know it. Tom Selleck. Oh, that they would have been awesome. They had signed him. <laughs> they had they had picked him. Yeah. And all of a sudden, CBS came in and said no. Oh, no, it was ABC. Came in and said no. We have him contracted for Magnum PI. You cannot have him for this Raiders movie. Then there was a writer strike. Yeah. And he so they said you know no he can't do it. So then he said he denied. They they picked up Harrison Ford to do it, and he could have done it because there was a writer strike and Magnum PI didn't happen for another year year and a half. Yeah. And I think we have been robbed of old man Indiana Jones that is actually awesome and dangerous looking as okay. opposed to just grumpy old. Have Harrison you, Ford. Have you watched Blue Bloods at all? I love Blue he's, Bloods. Man, Tom Selleck is just awesome. Yeah. I wish <laughs> I could mustache he like can, he does. Oh, it is the mustache that all other mustaches aspire to yeah. be. Oh, absolutely. But he is one of those people that can go from instantly feeling like he's a dangerous person mm-hmm. to charming. Yeah. And, and, and just kind of... Harrison Ford's just always grouchy. Yeah. Well, it, it, Harrison Ford himself has said... He doesn't like doing movies. Yeah. <laughs> like he was a carpenter who just got kind of roped into doing movies. He had tried acting and decided it wasn't for him, and so moved to carpentry, but never left Hollywood and did some work for George Lucas. And George yeah. Lucas is like, "Hey, would you read lines? Oh, thanks. You're gonna do this movie now." Yeah. <laughs> it's a funny thing. Anyway, that's that's it. We can stop with that. Sheldon, give us a did you know so we can move on from this drudgery. Did you know? Oh shoot! I lost it. Hold on, one minute. Did you know ah, that Sheldon was, lost it? No, it was pulled up here. The listeners at the phone. top when they found out that I was going to be here, here they're like, "Oh, it's a All long right. episode." In <laughs> in the one in a one hundred year span from nineteen twenty <clears throat> to twenty twenty of the Pittsburgh Pirates playing baseball. Mm. Okay, a hundred years. The games in which they had a pitcher that had double-digit strikeouts, so he had ten or more strikeouts, yeah. one pitcher with ten or more strikeouts, was two hundred and fifteen regular season games and one postseason game. Okay. Okay. So in their one hundred year span, this occurred two hundred and two hundred sixteen times, which is not a lot considering how many not games of baseball are played every so year. So two hundred sixteen times a Pittsburgh Pirates pitcher did this feat. Nolan Ryan from nineteen sixty six to nineteen ninety three, his career, had two hundred and fifteen regular <laughs> season games and one postseason game in which he had double digit strikeouts as a pitcher. <laughs> Nolan Ryan in his career achieved exactly the same stat as the entire Pittsburgh Pirates team for 100 years of playing baseball. Oh my now, goodness. I that includes old era, modern era, yeah, yeah, everything yeah. all together. I loved Nolan Ryan <laughs> as a kid and I didn't know why. Yeah. I just had a lot of his cards. I could probably count on one hand the number of games that I actually watched of him. Yeah. But he he to me he was like that Michael Jordan figure because yeah. I played little league baseball. I didn't play basketball. Totally. But like Nolan Ryan 
that's that to me was a mind blowing. Did you know? Yeah, <laughs> I love that. I don't. Uh, I don't know a lot about most sports. Um, does he have like the record for that? Uh, it, like double digit strikeouts? I don't know. I don't know what that probably, record would be. Probably, probably not. I would say probably not. Well, no, he might. He did pitch from sixty-six to ninety-three, which yeah. is incredible That's longevity. Yeah, that we and, and did it well. Other than Cal Ripken, I mean, there's not very many people that have done it longer. Yeah, but yeah. Neat. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like that. That was a good. Did you know? Yeah, baseball. Me. Baseball is back. Baseball. Football is me. back too, but the Niners lost today. So yeah. the Browns yeah. lost to the Browns today. <clears throat> the Browns lost because it's opening day. They don't win, but they, the first game of the season <clears throat> since 2004. But the Browns played the Browns because they played the Baltimore Ravens, mm. and that is the actual Browns organization. I forgot this is a minor beef of yours. It is a beef. It's it not coming. a minor beef. It's a big beef of mine. <laughs> and I won't say it again. I NFL won't say it again. viewership was down double digit percentage from last time they like from last season opener. Like people aren't watching. Yep. Although it was the most watched sporting event since the Super Bowl. Yeah. Thursday like, night's game. Which means that like just people aren't watching sports. It, even when Thursday on. night's NFL opener was the largest like largest watched sporting event since the Super Bowl. Right. So the NFL but it was not, way back. But it was not comparable to the Super Bowl, which when that quote is made... It was not comparable to season yeah. opener. Right, but when, that, but when that quote is made, it is made to imply that it's, that it's bigger than it's Super been. Bowl. Yeah. And again, I, I will not begrudge you. I agree. I know you feel about football coming back the way I felt about baseball coming back. I will not begrudge you that. But I just think that... I think the NFL is playing a stupid game. Football. <laughs> no, no. But in, 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 thank you, Nelson, for in your this, contribution in this. to this show. Like, regardless of what you think, remind of, me again why I asked you to be here. Regardless of what you think of the current dynamic of of protest and aligning with current protest yeah. on racial uh, issues right. in sports, regardless of what you think of it, viewership has spoken. Yeah. It did not go well when the NBA did it. Mm-hmm. It did not go well when baseball did it. And pro football is the last to the game. And their response is, yeah, let's do it too. Mm-hmm. Only because of where their season and fell. I, and I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying, right. I'm not saying they're late to the game in that they didn't share the sentiment. I believe they did. And the, and the league came out with statement and all NFL. that. And that is correct. Yeah. However, so. to now look at that and look your fans in the face and say, yes, you have all voted with your feet what you think, what you feel what you want and it's not the issue of agreeing or not agreeing for most people it's like i don't want political or social thing in sports i want this to be an escape for me let it be an escape and then they just said yeah screw you guys we're gonna do it too and i think they're suffering the brunt of that and that's why you're seeing the dramatic viewership decline that you're seeing yeah I'm a free speech absolutist. And I'm so with you. if you're going to put the players on the field, you have to give the players a voice. I'm like, totally with it. If the players care about that more than they care about making a certain level of paycheck, like their paychecks are not going away. Totally. Because of what they're saying or what they're doing. It may cost the league money, but at this point they don't care because they believe in something that, that what they're standing for is bigger. And and so so yeah, I mean that's that like you cannot take away the voice of the players. I, which I don't disagree. The, the NFL as an organization can't do that either. I don't disagree. I mean, 
you you already accepted money from the u.s government to put them out there for the flag in 2009 they weren't even on the field for the anthem before 2009 right. and we covered this yes in another podcast but they put them on the field so they're going to have a voice because they're out there and yeah. they're going to do it and that i mean people can vote with their dollars and some have but i don't think in the long run it really hurts the nfl more than not having thousands and thousands of people in the totally. stands is gonna hurt totally like yeah. not selling tickets because of covid is gonna hurt a lot totally i don't think, again, I, think I don't think in the large scheme right. of things the nfl themselves loses no and i'm and i'm making the statement over the long and i'm term. making that statement in an objective sense i don't have an axe to grind on this one. right because mm-hmm. again i'm i'm not i'm not i don't care like do what you're gonna do right. i don't care but but for me i'm like you had to see this coming yep like, this can't, we, we can't down, be a surprise we went down this road in other podcasts but i i will always stick up for the nfl and kaepernick yes. and all of this stuff so on but. kaepernick i only have one thought right oh dear like i don't i i and again i don't follow sports my understanding is he was a mediocre quarterback and most mm. most football players have a three-year career that's the average football player NFL career is three yeah, years. I think it's a little less than three, yeah. And and your chance of having traumatic brain injury is pretty high, especially as a quarterback. Uh, and so, in my opinion, he saw an opportunity, he took it, and he's doing better now. More like if, if we consider success as financials, he's doing better now than he probably ever would have done in the NFL. Mm. So. We'll stop the conversation here because the story of Colin Kaepernick <laughs> is very complex. Yeah, it, it really is. And he was not. No, I mediocre. think I got it pretty much covered he, there. He was not a mediocre quarterback. <laughs> like he, he shocked the world. Yes. Like he was. And, a, and then they figured him out. Yeah. False. And again, <laughs> I will you, fight you. on But this. you're also not objective on this one. And you know that. I'm not. And I'm willing to and I'm willing because, to give that to you because I was a fan of his when he was drafted totally and followed him before he even got the starting job and loved him long totally. before anybody else even knew he was out there and like cheered his every advancement so right. like i get it i i understand what happened to him on the football field because i watched every minute of yeah it. and it had a lot more to do with coaching and the team around him yeah than it had to do with his actual performance yeah and the fact that he's not playing football right now is a complete and total sham. He is better than Mitch Trubisky. And Mitch Trubisky is starting in the NFL this Sunday. He is better than that. <laughs> you just watch Mitch Trubisky throw behind another receiver and you just go, why is this guy <laughs> being allowed to be under center this long? It's horrible. Anyway, let's move on from this one. Yeah, we need to deep six that. <laughs> it's it's buried. It's it's dead. All right. We are here tonight to discuss. <laughs> we promised you that this would sometimes be profound and sometimes stupid. Tonight, it's been both in the same stupidly show. Stupidly so, profound. <laughs> this is stupidly profound. Um, I do my best. But what we're going to try and do <laughs> is switch gears completely and jump into a little bit of... Um, uh, some of the conflicts that Christians get into and how with other Christians with other Christians like within the church there are big arguments that people have and what I have appreciated and I didn't know this when I came to the Nazarene church uh, is that Wesley and the Wesleyan tradition has often sought to find a middle ground and a middle way through 
a lot of some of the worst arguments between Christians over time. And I didn't know that that was a flavor of the congregation that I joined years ago, but it's been something that I've come to love and find a lot of value in. So um, one of the things that me and Nelson have talked about off air and me and Nate have talked about off air is like the Calvinist and Arminian divide and Mm -hmm. how Wesley actually supports both. He doesn't throw either of those babies out with the bathwater and say, no, these guys are all heretics and these guys are all heretics. Like Calvin did. He, he definitely called other Christians heretics and saying, you know, these signed papers where people were burned at the yes. stake for it. Like yes. that's troubling. Yeah. You know, now, to, to be get- clear, most people don't think of this. Calvin and Wesley were not, in close proximity to each other. No, no, there's hundreds of years hundreds between. of years between them, and and a lot of people lose that because you know anything that happened hundreds of years ago apparently all happened in the same decade because we don't know history right. anymore. But just to be clear, they were not they were not interacting I, in I'm any realm. Really, really bad with dates. <clears throat> Was Calvin like 1500s? There's no way to know. <laughs> there is an easy way to know. It's called Wikipedia. Yeah, I want to say I want to say I had, I had Wesley somewhere in the 1700s. Yes, that's correct. Ish, like founding of America type era. Yeah, I uh, when I was in Georgia recently, I went for a hike and went to a spot where it was an island that he first came to America and he spent a year there, and like it was just uh, with the Moravians. Yeah, and yeah. He, he shook the dust off his sandals and left. Yeah, eventually after a, year, after a year. Yeah, yeah, and if, then and then eventually actually met Jesus and realized, oh crap, I did all this wrong. Yeah, um, fifteen hundreds. I I was gonna say that, but I actually did look yeah, it up. Fifteen hundreds in the fifteen hundreds for Calvin. Yeah, yeah, and dude had a killer beard. Yeah, and and Just all the Calvinists do wicked good. Yeah, <laughs> keeping the tradition. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that Nelson and I had talked about is that there's not a lot out there in the YouTube sphere or I don't, I don't know what that noise was that was just happening in the house. That's okay. Sounds like somebody <laughs> angry, knock angrily knocking at the door or dropping something down the stairs. Yeah. Um, either way, if we're not being robbed right now, um, <laughs> I'll text my wife and make sure we're not. <laughs> are we being so, robbed? Are we, is there something happening? No, either way. Um, what, what I was going to say is that, neither of those arguments are rejected necessarily and there's not a lot of stuff on youtube and out there where you can just be like oh how does wesley find the middle way through a lot of these arguments what what is the middle pathway between calvinism and arminianism what is the middle pathway between some of the other arguments that we can get into if we care to but um largely i mean you can you can maybe spur the discussion here if you want nelson but what was your you come from a wesleyan perspective but you also understand both sides and one of the things that you said to me is that i will tell people i'm a little of both and they're just like ah that's a cop-out and it's not a cop-out right so and i grew up in a wesleyan church uh king's valley wesleyan in quispamsis new brunswick and then I feel like you made up most of those words. I know you didn't, but we, I do we, feel like we you lived did. there almost a decade, and my dad could never pronounce it. 
and then now I go to a Methodist church. Um, and Methodism is out of the Wesleyan tradition, of course. And yeah. Wesleyan definitely is out of the Wesleyan tradition. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of this stuff I learned by osmosis. I don't know the theological terms, but I have good doctrinal understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I find myself oftentimes kind of uh, out of my depths when I ha- talk to my friends who are Calvinists, when I talk to my friends who are Arminians, and I I don't know how to defend my ideas because they're factory settings, you know? Yeah. So one of the things that Wesley took directly from Calvin and does not deny is the total depravity mm-hmm. issue. Like he would say, yes, in our, our human original sinful state, we do not seek God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is not a part of us that says... Oh, yes, God is good and I should place my trust in him yep. as a free moral choice. Right. It's God's grace that draws us to him. And Wesley calls it prevenient grace. Yes. It's the grace that goes ahead and gives you the opportunity to make a free moral choice. Right. Sure. But and and so he doesn't deny Arminianism that there is a free moral choice to be made and that you do have the opportunity to choose Christ or to reject him. Right. Whereas uh, Calvin would say that there's that grace is irresistible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That God's grace is irresistible. And if he, if God calls you to salvation or, or opens that door for you, that you are going to take it because the limited atonement would say that as well that right. that Jesus that must be true in order for right some people to not be Christians. Jesus only died for those that would place their faith in him, not for all of humanity. Yeah. Because then he would be taking on sins and paying for sins of people that will not place their faith in him. And so like that that's where they say there's limited atonement. The right. atonement is only for those that place their trust in him. Right. And it's, it's funny. Which they have no choice but to do. Right. Right. Yeah, which is, which, which is, is funny because you are going through what is known as the, the, the five points of Calvinism or known as tulip yeah. Calvinism, right. which is interesting because I, I, I remember listening to Mark Driscoll talk about tulip Calvinism and he actually mentioned the Nazarenes in terms of people that, yes, these are people that are Christians that, but, but that we disagree with doctrinally. Yeah. And like, they definitely love Jesus. But and he actually at the Nazarene church, I'm like, Hey, look, Mark Driscoll knows who we are. Awesome. Right. Yes, but we're, we're not very large, but, but he, we no. are relevant. Yes. Um, <laughs> but he, he said that the tulip concept, the five points of Calvinism were created as a response to Arminianism. Right. And I find that interesting because I feel like that mentality has carried through Calvinism. Yeah. That we are going to respond to, we are going to speak out against or whatever. React to. to what are thank we? you, that's yeah. the one. React what to. are we? We are not this. Yes. And, yeah. and, and so I think that tradition has been kept alive in that. And he even said, he's like, which is not a good way to do something. Like a reaction to something is not a good way to do it. He's like, but we still believe these things are true. Right. And he went into it, and it, and it was it was great. I mean, I I loved I loved listening to Mark Driscoll. He had a really great way of, of, condensing a lot of those things into, uh, palatable. And I don't mean watering them down, but like, okay, I can I can see what you're so talking about. The here. way the way the Nazarenes view this, and I'm I'm gonna break this down, and you can see if it makes sense. But originally, when we're born, we have a bent away from God because we're right. born into a sinful environment, and we we don't seek Him necessarily because because of the way we're we're born and inbred with sin like this is this is the nature of a fallen world right so 
we have a bent away from God. Now, what Wesley would say is that is a repairable bent. Okay. Like you can, you can by fully surrendering to the Lord, in a moment of sanctification and a process and a process afterward of <laughs> sanctification, that you your heart you can get a pure heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where your heart begins to desire the things that God desires. And your your old desires can be cast off and you are you have new desires right. which are not your own, but they're God's. Right. And so and you only have them through the grace of God, not through your own choice. Right. right. And your heart is being made new by submitting, willfully submitting to the grace of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we see this in our lives, like people coming to Jesus as Savior and dealing with their actual sin issue, like I hurt this person and I did this act of sin. I willfully broke a commandment or law of God. Mm-hmm. And so I've done actual sin and I come to Jesus because I need a savior. And maybe at a separate time or maybe at the same time, it doesn't matter. There may be a period of time there, but you also turn to Jesus as Lord yes. and saying, not only do I want you to handle my sin, which he will be faithful to do. He will handle the sin issue, but that doesn't correct the bent. So, you can you can have your sins paid for and still have those inner desires that are at war with your with your choice to recognize Jesus as savior right but you still have desires that are pulling you away from that relationship mm-hmm. so every time you trip up and every time you fall down people talk about it being backsliding right or whatever that is yeah like where what it is is I encounter sin I encounter temptation I fail so I fall out of relationship because mm-hmm. my bent is away from a relationship. So when I fall, I fall out of relationship. What we see is that in someone who has submitted to Jesus as Lord and said, you have it all, you have total control in my life. I will hold nothing back. Everything is yours. Mm-hmm. And now my bent is towards him. And in that moment, yes, I am bent towards him, but I will continually be shaped and molded into the image of Christ. Yeah. So as you continue down that process of sanctification, if you encounter sin or you encounter something where you stumble, you fall into relationship. You fall face down before the Lord. Right. And so when I'm confronted by a sin issue in my life it w- it, and the Lord reveals it and says, hey, you have something going on here that needs corrected, which mm-hmm. happens to all of us. Right. Yeah. Whether you have a pure heart or you have that state of original sin. In, with my bent towards Jesus and that pure heart inside, when I fall, I fall face down into relationship. Yeah. And it's a restorative process and not a continually backsliding, falling uh, like falling out of relationship trying to get back into relationship right. and real war within my flesh i've already right. settled and this argument of what happens when i mess up right and mm-hmm. this is this is one of the things that's interesting though because the the explanation within calvinism for this issue of of still living in sin and still having the bent towards sin is misunderstood in action but more solid in its in its, its base doctrine. theology and its doctrine. Right. So they would say, Jesus paid for the sins that I committed before I met him and for the sins that I will commit even now that I have right. met him. And so they would say, I have fallen because I'm still sinful, man. I'm still sinful. And I'm, and until basically I have reached glory Glor- as it will glorification. Yeah. 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 I will not be whole and I will not be perfect. So when I fall in sin, I've not fallen out of relationship with him. My job in that moment is to say, yes, 
I am sinful. I'm in need of a savior. You are that savior. Thank you, God, for having grace for me in this moment and that you have already seen this moment and that you have forgiven me already of this moment. Acknowledging that, standing up right where you are in your spiritual journey and continuing forward. I consider that a healthy mentality. When, when it's not the idea that, oh, I've fallen, now I have to go all the way back to the beginning and Jesus, will you right. be my savior? Will you do that? And now I'm going to, that is a healthy mentality. But Wesley took it a step further and saying, no, you don't have to be controlled by sin in that way. You don't have to be controlled by that bent. There is, there is a furtherance of the relationship with God where you can begin to be perfected in this life. And it's by no means of your own. It is another act of grace of God where yeah. he imbuing you with the Holy Spirit and you surrendering yourself to him fully then takes that bent and pulls it back towards himself. Right. And so there's a change. The bent is my term. It's not Wesley's term. Right. It's but, a good, but it's a good yeah. descriptor. Yeah. And so, you know, you'd, you'd hear Billy Graham a lot of times in his, uh, in his, um, in his sermons where he would say, I sin every day in word, thought, and deed. And I would listen to that and I'd go, no, no, there was a time when I did, but not, not anymore. I've grown and I've progressed beyond that as I've grown in grace. And it's not, and it's not me. That you don't, that you don't sin or that I'm not tempted. Yeah. Or that I'm not tempted, but it's, yeah. it's that it's that my bent has changed from what it, what do I want to what keeps the, what maintains the relationship? What keeps me close to God and, and what's between us and what can I, I get rid of harbor willful disobedience in my heart and expect to grow in my relationship with God. Yes. If, if that willful disobedience is harbored and that's a sin of the spirit, I cannot keep that and hang on to that and expect that my relationship is going to grow. Yeah. You have to grow in surrendering to him. Yeah. And continually being made new and being right. made into the image of God that you were created. In. Right. Now, I've heard Matt Chandler use the term progressive sanctification. Yes. Um, yeah. Is that Wesleyan tradition, Calvinist tradition? What's he's that? Calvinist. He's, I, he's, I know he's a Calvinist, yeah, he's, but that term is that... <sighs> Yes. Okay. Wesley Wesley would promote a both and with yes. that as well. Okay. There is a moment of sanctification and a process. Yes. Mm -hmm. As well. Right. Now, and Wesley, uh, Matt Chandler and spoke interestingly, the Wesley never claimed that he reached perfection himself. Right. Yeah. And I don't think I don't think it so what people come at Nazarenes or the Wesleyan tradition mm -hmm. for is saying you guys believe that you can be perfect. Yeah. You just don't, you don't sin anymore. Sin, that you just don't sin anymore. And you get there by carefully labeling sin. Right. And so I encountered this in What do they mean by that, carefully labeling sin? We Basically, the, the, the label against Nazarenes is you guys are all experts in sin and what is sin and what is not sin and this is sin and this is oh, not so you sin. Justify and compartmentalizing yeah. sin enough that you can finally say, I don't sin anymore. Yeah. Because you've so compartmentalized sin to the place that you're like, well, I don't do this, this, and this, but I may do uh, like mistakes or missteps yeah. or whatever these things okay. are. And and Calvinists are like, sin is sin. Mm -hmm. Like yes. yeah. you, when when you sin, you sin. Yeah. And Wesley Which, would have agreed with. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Um, yes. To a point. Yeah. I, I would. And so I to what point? Uh, I'll get into it and just put okay. a pin in that. Yeah. We'll come back. I'll come back. I, I encountered this a little bit in coming out of Bible college. There was a friend of mine who went to a very strict version of a holiness tradition mm. where they did believe in Christian perfection to the point that if you surrendered to God, you were perfect and you no longer sinned. And she told me that she no longer sins. 
at 22 years old yeah. and i'm like nah i don't buy it mm. i'm just like i don't buy it but I, I wasn't nazarene at the time i didn't have any <clears throat> any window window for what that would be or why someone would get to the place that they would say this i'm just like that is clearly bunk yeah like that is not related at all to my experience and the experience of christians that i've known to be faithful to the lord for years like yeah. lifetime I, christians do not have the experience that you're claiming to have and i don't buy it so as as clarified earlier calvin and wesley obviously never discussed these things because they live no, hundreds of years and apart. they couldn't have debated and they other. agree 100 percent now yeah they uh, absolutely and, agree. <laughs> yeah. They have both seen the face of Jesus, and they have no disagreement yeah. whatsoever. The theology anymore. has been made perfect. Yeah. Yes, um, they are both glorified. Yes. So modern Calvinists, then. <clears throat> oh, I lost my. What, 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 okay, so Jesus said, "Go and sin no more." To more than one person. Yeah. Yeah. How do modern Calvinists digest that? If 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 you can't be made perfect, if you can't not sin anymore, right? If if we are if we are destined to continually find ourselves sinning, what do they do with what Jesus said to several people? And I, I'm not trying to be like, yeah, like no, I it's a, it's a troublesome thing. And I don't know that I can answer for Calvinists in that. Okay. What I was going to come back to that we put a pin sure. in for a second is that, <laughs> and this is going to get a little tricky because I'm going to sound Nazarene, but the Bible doesn't use the same word for sin throughout. Yes. If you get into the original text of what what was written in the Greek and Hebrew when it talks about sin, it all translates to the English word sin, which is where a lot of English-speaking people go, sin is sin. This is sin. But there are sins that are not sins against the Holy Spirit. There are yeah. sins that do not break the relationship. Right. There, there are sins that are not willful disobedience mm -hmm. against a known command or law of God. And they are clearly described by the words that were used in the original text. And I'm not here to break it down because I don't have a lot of notes in front of me. I'm just going off the top of my head. Yeah. But you can get into word studies of what, what was meant by the original words that were written. So it's not, it's, it's not actually a, strike against Nazarenes that we look into the meaning of the original text as far as what is sin and what is not sin and what is required of people to deal with that sin. So I'm saying that the justification at salvation deals with my actual sin, the sins that I've committed myself, the things that would send me to hell had I not repented of them, right? Yeah. Like these are things that I would be called to account for on judgment day. The original sin is not sins that I've committed. It is my, my earthly flesh that my desires nature. things, those inner desires, okay? It's those inner desires, which I think could be described as iniquity. That's a, like there's like transgression is right. something that I've actually done. Iniquity is a condition of the heart yeah. where I desire something that is not in line with God. So I'm saying that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was enough to pay both for my actual sin and for the iniquity that lives within me. It yeah. is powerful enough to do that. But they are two separate things. that They can both be dealt with in one moment. The power is there. It's about applying that grace and right. understanding what I'm doing. 
So for me and Nate, we've talked about this uh, on, on the podcast several times, but for me, in my moment of salvation, I also made a lordship commitment to Jesus where I committed all of it at once. And I understood that I was giving a blank check to the Lord and he was able to write anything on that for my life. He was willing, like I was willing and am still willing, like there is nothing he can't ask me for. Mm. And so that was something that I made when I went to the altar to ask for forgiveness of sins as well. I asked him to be savior and Lord. So justification pays for my actual sin. Sanctification deals with my, my inner desires, my iniquity, my bent away from God, all of that. And I think it's good for people to get that understanding of there are two things going on. This is, sin is not just sin. There is something within me that desires to sin from the first place. I am dragged away by my own lust and entice. We love what it. What, Lord, is the solution for that inner mm -hmm. desire and lust? What is What can kill that love within me? Because I know it can be killed and buried, and I can be risen to new life in Christ. I know it. It's in the scripture. Yeah. And we, we preach it. We preach it with power because the power is there. Yeah. And if it was not possible, then there's no power behind the preaching. Yeah. Right? Right. You're preaching a limited a dead gospel, gospel and a limited atonement in a way that the atonement is not limited. The blood of Christ is enough yeah. to deal with every sin issue. Yeah. Not just some of them. Right. So if it is powerful enough to deal with every sin issue, then the only thing I need to grow in is applying the grace of God to the sin issues in my life, wherever right. they exist. And do we believe that we can be perfected in this life? We believe that it is possible, but, and, and you have to preach it that way. Otherwise you're saying it's impossible. And you're saying right? the blood wasn't enough. So Wesley did preach that it was possible, but he himself says that he didn't attain it because we all recognize that the the levels of sinfulness in our life, we don't even, we're not a good judge at ourselves. Right. Yeah. That's why we say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Mm -hmm. See if there's any wicked way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. That's a yeah. perfect prayer to pray. It does not lead you astray because you are not judging yourself. Mm -hmm. And so as the grace of God, we start to realize how deep and how real and how powerful it is. We, we begin to apply it by surrendering all of us. And that, that to me preaches really well. And I don't see anything in, I, I feel like that is faithful both to, yes, we are originally depraved. Yes, we are bent away from God. There is none, there is no part of us that seeks God. And the more you encounter the grace of God, the more you realize, hey, Calvin, you were on the right track. Yeah. But we cannot deny the power of the cross to be able to deal with every bit of sin. Yeah. Sure. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's one of the things, too. I mean, we've talked about it again, that that my experience was very different is in that I had like an 11 year gap between my salvation experience and my sanctification experience um, because it just didn't. I'd heard sanctification preached all my life and I heard it in my head, even though it, nobody ever said this to me. What I heard it as was try harder, be better. Mm hmm. And so I was striving. There's another level to I it. Yeah, somehow. I was striving yeah. for this level. I was trying. And it's all of a sudden, in a moment, I realized the only thing that I could do was give up. 
that was it. It was God telling me literally the closest thing to an audible voice I've ever heard saying, choose me now or I will walk away from you. Like I will let you go. And I felt like what that felt like for 30 seconds. And it was the worst feeling in the world. It was like all the air got sucked out of the room. It was awful. And it was like, I came back from there like, no, like I can't, I can't do that. I have to have you. So yeah, I'm done. I give up. And there have been issues of sin. There have been things that God has dealt with, but I made a decision in that moment that it was going to be a yes, no matter what. I may have to wrestle at times. I may have to say to God, I'm going to give up the practice of this, but it's still in my heart. I need you to remove what's in my heart. Um, and as an act of faith, I'm going to give up the practice of this thing, knowing that you're going to transform my heart. But it's all him. Mm-hmm. Like the only thing I said was I give up. My that power, was it. That my, was the only part that I had in it. Yeah, my power to defeat sin is nothing. Nothing. It I doesn't have, exist. We, right. we have no power to it defeat sin. It does not sin. exist. Right. right. And the only time you realize that it's like this is not self-control. No. Like self-control is a fruit of the spirit yes. for a reason. It's his alone. Yes. Right? I really can't self-control my way to this. Yes. It's his. Yes. So and and that is kind of a, a middle way in in the way that we would say like and and the other thing that's levied against and this is another argument that goes back and forth well can you lose your salvation do you if you guys believe that if you believe you can lose your salvation you're a heretic right mm-hmm. because christ doesn't lose any that are in his hand right mm-hmm. and so the calvinists would say that they would disagree with us on that mm-hmm. right and to a certain extent <clears throat> and and of wesley finds a middle pathway to, there as well but I, I would like to touch on that for a bit because they say that you can't lose your salvation and everybody who goes to church knows somebody that went to church and doesn't anymore mm-hmm. right and 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 was committed to god and isn't anymore and the calvinist i, I think it's not even a big like uh mental gymnastic of, on their part they just say yeah they weren't saved to begin with yeah and, you know, the Bible says you can't know the condition of another man's heart. So, sure, maybe that's true. But we also say we know them by their fruits. And I know some people that, like, judge them by their fruits. Man, were they going after God. Yeah. And now they're not. Right. There was a transformative moment and you saw it. Yeah. Yeah. And now they're and, not. And, and Wesley would look at that and say, yes, you are eternally secure. You cannot be snatched from the hand of God. The but devil you can cannot step- just randomly yeah. snatch your soul from the hand of right. God. That doesn't, that doesn't happen. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So again, Wesley would say, yes, eternal security. Absolutely. As long as you are continuing in relation, right relationship with God. If you make that choice, when he reveals, when the Holy spirit would show you something, you've said that. Yes. You've had that moment and the Holy spirit reveals to you. Right. And you look at him and say, no, I'm done with the relationship. No, I'm not doing that. That is when you can say, I'm stepping away from this. I'm walking away from this. And it usually tailspins into the very kind of thing you're talking and about. And it is a sin that grieves the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And, and this is why it's so consequential. Because that is the Holy Spirit continuing in relationship with you. Right. Yeah. And he's pointing something out to you that is wrong in your life. And if you choose to say, nope, I value this thing above you. That's a grave, if you look in scripture, this is a really grave choice to make. Mm -hmm. And people that make that choice and say, nope, I I understand what you're asking me, but there's a bridge too far and I'm out. 
you can almost watch their engagement spiritually in that yep. relationship deteriorate. Yeah. And I think something was pointed out to me this week that was really, really solid with that. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, okay? Mm-hmm. And they commit the sin. They eat of the fruit. The Lord comes in the garden and says, where are you? Yeah. Okay. The Lord knew where they were. Yeah. He is still, their sin did not change God. Yep. Their sin did not change one bit of what God does. Mm -hmm. God still walks in the garden. He still calls for them and they should have come. Yeah. Right. But what had changed was their perspective of who God was. Mm -hmm. So suddenly He's doing the exact same thing, but what they what they had seen as love and what was still love to them looked like wrath. judgment. Yeah. yeah, it looked like wrath and it looked like judgment. So they hid. The reason they hid is because the love of God had changed to wrath because their perspective had changed because of their sin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when we reject the Holy Spirit and we say no. He becomes a nag. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And it's still love. It's still love. It is the same love that drew us. Yeah. It is the same provenient grace that went ahead and revealed to me that I was a sinner. Yeah. And I responded to it and said, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I need a savior. And then eventually down the road, I said, yes, yes, yes. And after a while, I was like, nah, no, 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 no. Yeah. And suddenly the same love that he had shown to me for years and years and years begins to sound naggy mm. and I, I, it sounds like wrath. It sounds like judgment. It sounds like shame. It's not. Yeah. It's him calling me to deeper relationship. It's my response and my sin issue that has changed my lens in the way I'm viewing it. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, people can choose to reject the salvation that they hold. They can choose to walk away from it. Yeah. It is a dire choice you are aware that you are making it Mm. and you don't care you will not be surprised you are you will not be surprised at your choice but it is also i've i've talked to a number of people like how do i know that i'm saved how do i know how do i know for sure i'm saved and a lot of that is are you worried about whether or not you're saved (laughs) and if they're like yes i'm very worried can you point to a place in your life where you accepted jesus as savior yes you're saved. Yeah. You're worried about the condition of the relationship, yeah. which means you value it. You're concerned about it. And you can point to a time where you you asked him to forgive your sins. Yeah. Like there are some places in your life that might need resurrendered or whatever, but he's got you. You're yeah. you're eternally secure. What I'm worried about is the people that don't care. Yeah, that, that don't even ask the question. Made <laughs> a profession of faith. And they, like you said, bore bore fruit and you could see it in their life and they yeah. were walking some way. And then they chose their own way and they no longer care. Yeah. And to me, that's, that's really troubling. Right. And, and I a have, lot of times that manifests itself in you will confront somebody in a loving way and say, hey, I see this thing in your life and I see you drifting. Like, what's going on? And they'll say, no, I'm good. Me and Jesus are better than we've ever been. I'm great. And you're like, but you're not. Like, you're clearly not by, by what, what your actions are bearing out. Um. And it, and it becomes, they become the, well, don't judge me crowd. You yeah. can't judge o- me. Only God can judge. Yeah. That's not what Paul said. Yeah. Uh. And, and it's, and he will. Yeah. He will eventually yeah. judge you. Right. But if you're, 
looking to your justification that you've somehow concocted in your brain to save you yeah. and not the blood of Jesus and not surrendering to what that means, mm -hmm. then um, not sure what kind of faith you're saying you're standing on. Yeah. Like no. if we are going to stand in our faith regardless. Like there's a hall of faith in Hebrews for a reason. Yeah. Abraham was saved by faith. Yeah. Like now this is going to pull us off the conversation specifically of the middle way for a bit, but how does the Nazarene community handle church discipline? Yeah. In what, in what regard? In like what regard, what, yeah. What you, so, so, like, what for example, the here? conversation that you said that you've had before where you have a person and they're just like, no, we're better than ever, and yeah. they're, but they're not willing to talk about it. Like, how would the Nazarene church proceed from there? Right. Generally speaking, when I'm talking about those situations, it's somebody who's already pulled away from the body and pulled away from communion in, in, right. the, in the family of believers. And that's that's always one of the biggest indicators to me. Like if you're and I don't just mean like church attendance, but like you're just you're pulling away from the accountability, from the the community and you're just you're floating out there by yourself. It's always the beginning of a downward spiral. I have never seen somebody separate themselves from the body and do well. Mm -hmm. I just have not seen. And I mean that in every sense. I don't care what you're community your faith community is right. and, you're, and you're not specifically talking about they don't go to our church anymore they go to a different no, church you're talking no, no, no. specifically they don't go to any church they just step away yeah. completely yeah. and so if you're looking at church discipline though it does follow that idea of you know confront a brother directly you know then confront them with a witness and if need be you know go before the, the it, it does follow that model and um, often in today's culture and I, I don't know how this worked in the early church necessarily but church discipline is only as good as the commitment of the person involved yeah so if they're very committed like say they're a pastor or a leader right. in some regard church discipline is is very high like right. there is a higher bar mm -hmm. for those that are committed to leadership and they will be held to a certain standard and yeah. they will have to answer for a number of things and i think if you are committed to being a part of the body and asking for any position of leadership, there is a level of scrutiny. So yes, there is going to be certain measures of that. And like, we want to see evidence and fruit. And if there isn't, it'll be challenged maybe one-on-one -on -one, and then with a group or that kind of thing. But if you're just talking about a, a random person that is loosely associated with the congregation, the level of discipline that a church can bring in that regard is pretty small yeah like it really does depend on the commitment of the person involved right. as well to and and again discipline is out of love anything right. the church does in a real scriptural way has to be done in love so if there's not a level of relationship there right then there's not a lot of room if there's not a lot of love between them then the level of truth that can be brought is also low. Right. You know? Sure. And that's, and that's one of the things too. I mean, it, it, I would say the, the level of church discipline in, in the Nazarene church centers more around the clergy. It really, it just really does the expectation for, for clergy. Um, and again, that will, the more, the more or leadership, still the most committed elements of the church. Right. I so mean, the more leadership you get into, clergy, like if you're, you're a board member yeah. or you're serving in a certain capacity, that's where it starts to, when you're in a leadership position, that's where you start to see the more dramatic versions of what you would think of as church discipline. So, for for example, 
to be fair, that's where it was centered in the early church right. as well. Right. I mean, Paul often would call out people by name, but these were not just random people that walked in the door. Right. A lot of time they're church leaders or they're people that have a following or were trying to gain yeah. a following within the church. Okay. So, so, so Paul did the same thing. Like these people say they're committed and they're coming into your congregation. They're claiming to be committed. They're claiming to be some kind of leader. Here's my correction. Right. You know, and, and he, he very often did not just, I don't know. I, I do have a, a problem with the practice of excommunication that happens in the historical Mennonite church or today in the Amish church or yeah. things like that. Like there, there is a weird thing that happens when you start practicing that. The uh, shunning. Yeah. Thing. The shunning thing and things like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. that can get, well, and, and to give a very firsthand example, um, you know, the Bible says you actually treat people as an unbeliever, like at the end of that process, mm -hmm. if, if they don't respond to church discipline mm -hmm. or whatever, you treat them as an unbeliever. And my response is always, and how is the church supposed to treat unbelievers? <laughs> That's Still right. pretty good. With hostility and anger? Right. No. Yeah. With love, respect, but honor? To, but to give a, a very firsthand example, uh, and, and this is not me talking out of turn because you can find this reality in, in very uh, – in various forms of, you know, my parents sharing and they've shared this openly, but my, my parents went through a really messy divorce in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, there were a lot of dynamics that led up to this, but it basically ended up in my mom having an extramarital affair when this whole thing was exposed. Um, she actually submitted to church discipline and they said, what you need to do is we're going to have on a Sunday, we're going to basically say, Hey, if you are a member of the church, you were to stay at the end of service, everybody else is to go. And she stood up in front of the actual assembly of members of the church and confessed what had happened, submitted to whatever disciplinary measures that the, that the, the leadership of the church was going to do. And they gathered around my parents and prayed for them and, and, basically dealt with it as a family matter. But I mean, she did, she got up in front of it. She owned it, you know, her aspect of now, again, there was, it was a much deeper issue than just, Oh, you've had an extramarital affair. There was much more to that, that would, that would come over time. And, and their marriage still ended up falling apart as a result of it. They just couldn't, couldn't stand up under the strain. Now, again, God worked redemptively in that later. And they, you know, by the grace of God came back together and, and, and he radically restored them. Um, Both of them, but yeah. she literally stood up and, and confessed in front of the these people who looked at her as a leader and who loved her and who s viewed her in high esteem. And that was a very real, very heavy thing to do, but it was what they asked of her and she submitted to that. And then they, they actually uh, paired that with the, these are some ways that you're going to set aside for ministry and that we're going to set you up with some. Uh, some people that will will help walk you through a restorative process and different things like that. So there was a very real, very heavy thing. Um, and again, she was not an ordained uh, person. The reality is, on that district, you have to go even further than just the local church if you are um, a credentialed person. That would go up to the district, and they could potentially ask you to surrender your credentials. Um, or you can voluntarily turn them in. I know a few people who have done that. They've had some kind of moral failure and they've gone to their district superintendent and said, I'm giving these back because I've broken the vow that I made mm. uh, to, to, to basically live, live holy before God. Like I've broken it and I've, I've forfeited my right of leadership. So it's much, it's much heavier in a leadership capacity um, to varying degrees than it is probably in the so-called rank and file of the church. Right. Um, it's not that micromanaged. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious um, because I 
so the churches that I've been to did not in in my from what I've seen do a whole lot of church discipline. Mm. Um and and that's not something I want to talk about on air right now. Right, uh, maybe no, maybe okay. another time. Um but I'm always in curious about how that gets handled right in different congregations. Uh and and we touched on it briefly so I wanted to dig a little deeper yeah. on that. Um do we have time to address the Wesleyan quadrilateral? Or yeah, we I was just going to get into epi- that. Yes. So, so what the Wesleyan quadrilateral is, is a way of understanding authority uh, within the church. And a lot of what had happened is over the years, the Catholic church had recognized the church as the highest authority. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the church would read the scriptures and, and uh, discern, discern what those meant. And then, pass them down faithfully and so the church was actually the highest authority in the catholic understanding protestantism said no you don't get to do that scripture is the highest authority and that was martin luther's thing if it can be found in scripture and the church is somehow out of line then the church needs to be corrected by scripture so scripture is the primary authority sure Mm -hmm. west the wesleyan quadrilateral is how wesley uh, viewed authority within the Wesleyan churches as he established them, okay. as, as he established Wesleyanism. And it wasn't anything that he ever actually said. It was something that a uh, Wesleyan scholar more recently has coined coined the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Mm-hmm. But it actually works. If you go back, um, I would say it's more borne out in er, mid-Wesley, like early Wesley, you didn't see it as much. Mm-hmm. But his radical... Um, sanctification experience and afterward um, even up into some of the late Wesley writings you see it a lot and and that's when he was most powerful and most influential and the Wesleyan quadrilateral I think it's best viewed as a stool and I've seen it I've seen it as like a Venn diagram with four parts and that's not necessarily the best way of viewing it a, a, a three-legged stool mm-hmm. is probably the best way of viewing it. So you have the flat disc on top that you sit on and then the three legs yep. that come down. So he would have said that scripture is that seat, that primary place of resting. Scripture, or, or sometimes in the Venn diagram, it's three things and then scripture going around it. That mm-hmm. one. Yeah, that one. With scripture yeah. I'm showing a picture. going around the outside <laughs> and then it, tradition, experience, and what am I missing? Reason. Logic. Reason. Reason or logic. So, and by tradition, he means early church tradition. Yeah. Not like all of the church tradition from the early church to now. Right. Collectively, but more early church tradition, probably the first 400 years of the life of the church, basically. Like, as they fleshed out the canon, as they fleshed out what was... Everything before Constantine, basically. Yeah. So, like, before church had any sort of like uh political yeah affiliation at all so um the the very early church tradition uh logic and reason so like our human ability to reason our our reasonable faith anything that you can relate to logic or understanding and then experience so um it's more of a filter for understanding things like can someone lose their salvation if we are and this is another wesley middle way 
there is the idea of sola scriptura yeah. within the Wesleyan tradition, and we don't deny that because right. scripture is the ultimate authority. Right. Okay. So above all of these things, scripture is the authority. But we understand and we come to scripture by applying our logic and our reason and faith being faithful to the early church tradition so we don't get off into heresies right. by our own logic and reason. But another way that we don't get off track is by directly relating it to to our experience. Mm -hmm. And we see that as foundational mm -hmm. in Wesley's teaching and what he experienced was he he's like i've had this experience with the lord what how where is this in scripture and goes back to scripture to try and flesh out yeah. what he was experiencing right but his experience was a large part of how he understood scripture right as was reason and and, and that's the thing tradition. is most people don't think of this but but and you mentioned this so because those are the, the four parts right because of the the, the 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 catholic church being the authority right you know luther's push in the idea of of the supremacy of scripture right. was a reaction to the catholic church's excess of power and overreach so once again we're looking at a reaction he because was not the wrong church itself uh parsed scripture for right. everybody else right so the and church, had corrupted it had the, used it as the as, church itself was not answering necessarily to Scripture right. as the ultimate authority. The church they, they, was the ultimate They had authority. become the bad guy from the book of Eli, where he wanted it because he could control people with it. That's what it had become. The church had become corrupt. And so he looked at it and said, no, let's come back to the primacy of Scripture. And he was not wrong, but it was, in a, re it was a reactive state. And so one of the things, and this is the thing talking to my, my cousin about this, and I had, I had forgotten about this, but if you look at Wesley, you don't get Wesley without the Anglican church. Yep. And the Anglican Church was really the beginning of this idea of a middle way because yeah. they looked at, at Protestants and Reformed and they're like, yes, yes, yes this, is, this is both, to, both yes. You know, this is not, there's not a so, hard no here. So then you, you kind of reject then the uh, accusation that the Anglican Church was started so that King Henry could divorce. That is correct in terms of its organization. It is historically correct. And, yes. and that, is, that was a political move on his part. But the the teachings that were forming Anglicanism, most people misunderstand Anglicanism as a as a think as a as a method of thought and as a method of theology predated Henry's choice. Okay, Henry looked at it. But and there said, were things that grew yeah. before and were given room to grow by that choice. Yes. Okay. Like, but then Henry looked at it and said, "This will give me what I want. This is now the state religion." Got it. He didn't create Anglicanism. He made Anglicanism the right. state religion, as aside from Catholicism Got it. or Protestantism. And even though there was a political element, what was growing and what was allowed to grow is still organic in, yes. in a certain regard and yeah. not necessarily political. Yeah. And okay. Henry had very little interest in his role as head of the church in that sense. And even with Wesley's experience and understanding of sanctification and all of that and starting all those Wesleyan bands... And, yeah. and basically Sunday schools and working with Arthur Guinness to establish some some Sunday schools in Ireland and things yeah. like that. Like there are many 
complex things to Wesley's story, but he was not looking to abandon the Anglican no, church. He believed there was room for Methodism within right. the Anglican church. And he's like, church. I'm not teaching something that's opposed to our teaching. I'm experiencing something that we don't have language for. And yeah. I'm trying to give language to it. And I'm trying to preach the the full the fullness of the sacrifice of Christ and how that applies to our lives. And we just don't have language for it yet. Right. But he was not looking to leave the Anglican church and, and did a lot to try and keep Wesleyanism under or within the Anglican church. But right. That became Methodism, not Wesleyanism. Oh, meth- he Methodism. would not, yeah, he would right. not love he that would not, no. anything was called Correct. Wesleyanism to this yeah. day. He would not like that. <laughs> um, so again, that gets, I think that gets lost no in the Wesley shuffle a scholar. lot. I, like I say, all this is off the top of yeah. my head. So. Well, and again, Calvin wouldn't like the term Calvinism either. No, <laughs> not at all. Um, but but this this gets into where some of these things were shaped from. It, it didn't just happen out of a vacuum for him. There was there were things in his in his traditions that he was a part of that helped inform this. Um, so again, a lot of people will look at it as just like Wesley just got like crazy all of a sudden and did all these weird things and created all. It's like no, there there was a linear path to where he ended up. It was not just a a random offshoot. So. With Lutheran, uh, with with Luther, kind of being to some degree a reaction to the Catholic Church and what it had become, and Calvinism, a reaction to Arminianism, are there things within Wesley's tradition that were reactive? There are certain elements of totally. today's of today's Wesleyan churches that were reactionary to the culture in which they were formed. Are you talking about? Wesley himself or like yeah, the Wesley, Wesley himself like so I, I know the Nazarene yeah. uh, movement has strong ties to the abolitionism yeah um, but um, specifically which is, prison reform which is very react- reactionary yeah. right but I'm, I mean specifically Wesley yeah um, <clears throat> Wesley was a very big tent I mean really in a lot of what he taught <clears throat> he had absolutes for his adherence to Methodism but he in no way taught that his way was the only way or that he had figured it all out. He was trying to give language to something that was happening right. and, and something he, that he believed, believed had been lost in translation over the years in and the church. A lot of his struggle is in putting it in correct terms. Like he struggles deeply with the term Christian perfection, but he didn't have any other words. He felt like it described best what he was trying to get yeah. at. Okay. But he, if, he he blatantly says i don't feel like christian perfection is is the best term to give this yeah i just don't but have anything else i don't to have do anything else that's better yeah. and that's what we're working with got it so when it's saying oh you guys think you can be perfect no not even wesley really thought that that right. was great language for what he was talking about okay right and and again it, it it's it's borne out in the in the way that wesley's ministry went because he associated with strong calvinists yeah and preached with them and right. held revival meetings with them. Like he, he did not look at them as adversaries. Well, he, he associated closely with Moravians. He, yeah. he associated closely with people in the American term. church. But what's Moravian? That, that's where he went on his missionary journey that you talked about. Not to, to be confused with the Merovingian. Yes. Nobody. I don't know what that Nobody? is. Nobody. I don't know either of these words. I was I was throwing down a Matrix reference. Okay. Don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> Nobody anyway. cares. Somebody so, out but, there listening to this cares. The, the main point is that he his <laughs> preaching was not against any of 
right. n- any of the uh, accepted or, or established churches necessarily. Mm-hmm. He was trying to give language for experience, which is where in the Western Wesleyan quadrilateral, that vein of experience, people are like, oh, that's really terribly subjective. But in our understanding, that is very vital. Right. Like because the experience a, a lot of is worth as right. much as reason and church tradition right. that does have to be part of the lens and this is and this is where and if you think that your your own experience you is not affecting how you look at scripture that's just confirmation bias right and and it and you also are not serving a relational god if you don't believe that experience has anything to do with any right. of this like if you have a relational God who can be known and is as powerful as we say he is, when we come into relationship with him, it's going to change our, ex- our experience of God is going to shape how we view the text. Yeah. Like we can read scripture at different points in our lives and it means something different to us because our experience has changed. Mm-hmm. Right. It can speak to us in different ways. Right. And again, this is where you get into the whole idea of the living, active word of God. Like it, it will point to things in your life and it will right. touch you in different ways at different times. Um, it's not a dead letter. That is also not an excuse to not understand scripture contextually and historically and, right. and, and correctly. We don't throw out reason either. Right. You can't right. just like throw out reason and just go totally experience based, which is where people get off into all kinds of other things, right. which is what holds Wesleyanism to a standard. Mm-hmm. It's like, yes. You are having this experience, but you must also apply logic here. And it can't be outside of established Christian doctrine. Right. So if you come into, that's why he had a radical experience Mm -hmm. and he struggled a lot to bring reason to bear and to contextualize it within the teaching, the established teachings of the church. And where, and whereas Calvin's Calvin's teaching was scripture and tradition. Those right. were like the thing. And Wesley looked at it and said, yes, and also reason and also experience. He never discounted and never the, and please clearly never the primacy of scripture. He always looked at that. Yeah. That was absolutely the ultimate thing. If your experience, it's not three posts yeah. just sticking up in the air. If like, your experience is the thing, yeah, if your experience, reason and traditions do not match scripture, you go to scripture, you default to scripture. So in that way, he is distinct from Catholicism, but not, not opposed to Luther and the Protestant Uh, Reformation. Right now. So it is distinctly Protestant in saying that scripture is the primary authority, but it borrows enough from Catholicism saying the traditions of the church are very important to make mm -hmm. sure we don't get into heresy. Yeah. Now you did say that he preached alongside many Calvinists of his day. How did the Calvinists of his day react to his middle way uh, theology? Much less violently. There were people who who would say to him, like, I mean, him and George Whitefield had had conversations where he basically told him, like, no, you're wrong. George Whitefield probably being the most prominent. Yeah. And and Wesley would say, well, I believe that I believe that your your view is incomplete. And they would say, "Okay." And hold massive revivals. Yeah, together. they yeah. they 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 knew that they agreed on Jesus. Right. right. They knew that they agreed on the on salvation by faith alone. That it was a work of God and, a, and the grace of God alone. They agreed on that, mm-hmm. and they knew all the rest was details. Mm-hmm. And this is where it gets hairy now. Yes. Because people want to say that the details delineate whether or not you were preaching the gospel. Yeah. yeah. Well, 
So I see this now. Granted, uh, I've got way more Calvinist friends than Arminian friends. Um, There's way more Calvinists than there are Arminians or, or Wesleyans. We're we're the minority. I I see with a lot Although of my even the evangelical world is full of Arminian thought. Yes, yeah. saying like choose choose Jesus today and yes, that's kind of totally. Like, yeah. like now, I, anytime you get into re- really evangelistic strains, Arminianism is prominent. Yes, so. but I do see a lot with with. Um, Especially my more Calvinist leaning friends, uh, a it appears that there is a concerted effort to look at what prominent pastors and preachers are saying and prove that it's not the real gospel. Yes, um, and it always just sits bad with me, and so yeah. I tr- I try to just kind of keep quiet because I'm like I don't want to get into this debate, yeah. this argument. Um, but I, I think that kind of is born out of what you were commenting on, just the it, like making the details way more important than the yeah, foundation. Right. And and I think there is room for these discussions within the body of Christ. Making a documentary to slam people who are not involved in the conversation is not doing that. Or using your pulpit to publicly tear down another part of right. the body is also right. troubling. Like right. anytime I see in the same way that you're saying, you know, people will just point out, oh, this guy's not preaching the real gospel because it's not the gospel I under- as I understand right. it. Like, I find it just as troubling to hear a pastor maybe from the other side or any side call out another pastor. You can call out, as we've done in this podcast, mm-hmm. a number of th- ways of thinking that we believe are incorrect. Without yeah. using names. Right, without using names. And I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to lambast anybody or say that they're wrong or that they're leading people to hell. Right. But there are, you can find videos online of people that say, Robbie Zacharias is going to hell. Really? Okay. (laughs) Well, if there is, if there, if there is a heaven to be had, Robbie Zacharias may be one of the handful that is there. (laughs) Like if you're sending him to hell, I don't know how narrow your heaven is. And I, I think this is one of the things though, is, is, is that, that gets interesting. And I think this is where, people outside of particularly fundamentalist Calvinism get hairy is because they start to react angrily to this and they will almost turn on, on people who are fundamentalist and look at them and say, no, what you're saying is leading people to hell. Yeah. I don't believe, I believe there are very few bad actors within Calvinism and fundamentalism. I believe they are genuinely so impacted by what their experience with God has been that this is what they believe and they hold to it so dearly and tightly that this is where this fierceness comes from. They believe that they are defending the faith. I I believe they are misguided in not their faith, but their application of correction. I believe their application of correction, what they perceive as correct, is incorrect because of the way that it is so divisive and so poisonous and, and so accusatory is the lack of love yes and it's so interesting to me because particularly if we're going to the outside extremes um calvinist fundamentalist calvinists love their two favorite whipping boys not equally are catholics and charismatics now i find it interesting because i feel like fundamentalism catholic and um charismatic 
all kind of exchange their lost. I know people who have gotten so into fundamentalism that they have moved into Catholicism because like, no, this is the original way. This is what we need to go back to. And so fundamentalists have lost people to the Catholic faith. And then I've also seen Catholics who've like, man, this whole authority that the church has is too much. And they discover, they discover fundamentalism. Like, yeah, this makes a little more sense. There's more experience here. There's more room here. And they move from the Catholic faith, faith into fundamentalism. And then you have the people who got bitter at fundamentalism and they have an experience in the Holy Spirit that fundamental fundamentalism does not have room for, and they go charismatic, and they go all the way out charismatic. And then you have the charismatics who are like, man, I've had all these experiences, but man, the supremacy of Scripture was not something that was taught to me. I'm coming to the fundamentalists or now. you have charismatics who get <clears throat> it's so relationally connected to God that they're like, God is really holy, guys. Yeah. Like, he does not tolerate right. sin. Right. And I'm not going to tolerate it either. Right. And you all need to get your crap right. together. And, and, so, and all of a sudden, they become very right. fundamentalist. Right. And so there's this, like, weird, <laughs> there's this weird intermingling that happens yeah. between these three sections of the faith. Those three sections, and I, I may be wrong because I'm not as... Uh, you know, I'm I may... That's the first time I've heard it broken down that way, but it's not bad. That <laughs> Those... Those three different sections, as you've described them, strike me as the three different parts of interpreting scripture, right? You've got yeah. one that's a very, uh, like the charismatic church, the best criticism of them, and I think the, the right criticism of them, is that they're too focused on the experiential. experiential. Mm-hmm. The Catholic church is too focused on tradition. The presence yeah. of God over everything. Yeah, and the Catholic church is too focused on tradition. Right. And then the fundamentalist church is, in my own personal experience, too focused on logicking harder than everybody else right mm. yeah so. our i would say are, our I would brains say, are bigger than everybody else yes yeah. Scrip- scriptural scripturally logicking harder than anyone else yeah and you've and got leslie over here in the corner going yes yes to all of these things yeah. yes and they're and they're all like heretic yes yeah <laughs> all three of them <laughs> yeah um and 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 so it is but, it is but f- really there is there there is a unifying factor to that and saying like can we find agreement here? And it is not compromise. Yeah. Like I, I dislike the abandonment of convictions in order to prize compromise. Sure. That's not what we should do as a church and say, you know what? These, these things that we have as convictions, really what we need to do is compromise so that we can come to the best solution. Yeah. And well, you don't really want to get stuck in this ditch or that one, but really the best way is in the middle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we we would say, no, there are convictions worth standing for. And, and you do need to make stances that compromise is not necessarily the the only way forward. We right. don't prize compromise over everything. But unity is good. Yes. Unity is good. Somebody needs to call for unity and somebody needs to say, we're all in this body together and I'm going to resist the urge to tear my brother apart. And I'm going to find we are both we are all reading the same scriptures. Let's let's see where we can agree. Mm -hmm. And all of us continue to preach Jesus because he is the power to save. Right. And don't don't tear down somebody's effort if they're preaching Jesus. I think Paul was pretty consistent in that. It, whether he's, he even said at one point, whether it's through false motives or true, is Christ being preached? Mm-hmm. Like, so, and yet he was very keen to correct people on their motives when he had room and authority sure. to do so. But I think, I think we often try to correct people that we don't have authority to correct. Sure. 
when what we really should say is like Jesus needs to be preached. Right. Right. You know. Right. And and there is almost universal agreement on that. Right. <laughs> exactly. Almost. But then we get into the details and that becomes the problem. Right. Um so yeah, it's 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 a funny thing. Uh and our 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 actual church is a wonderfully great example of yeah. this. The church that we attend, yeah. Yeah, in that I am a lifelong Nazarene. I'm a third generation Nazarene. Which my, is rare. Yeah, my uncles are were Nazarene pastors, have now retired. My grandfather was a Nazarene pastor. Um I am I'm third generation Nazarene on both sides of my family. Like we are wow. Nazarene to the core. Mm-hmm. But our church is made up of former Catholics, of Baptists, of Nazarenes, of Mennonites. Mennonites. I mean, you <laughs> name it, you'll find them in our church. No experience in the church. Amish. Tons like, of experience. Yeah. I mean, you name it, they're there. Yeah. And we have we will not compromise our doctrine. We won't say anything different and say, well, oh, you're a fundamentalist, you know, background. Okay, well, well, here's what appeals to you about. And it's like, no, this is what we believe. And there's room for you. There's yeah. room for you here. But this is what we believe. Right. And I, I heard somebody try and put your dad on the spot one time about Calvinism oh and yeah. Arminianism. And he basically said, I'm a Calvarminian. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, ah. Yeah. And again, that's. I was waiting for the yeah. fireworks. And, right. that, and, that was, and that was Wesley's way. Right. That was Wesley's it way. Is. And, and, and that is what I consider. What I consider the beauty of I hope of he Wesley. doesn't mind me saying that. No, no, that's great. <laughs> that's what I consider the beauty of of what Wesley's theology is. Is it was not. It was a both and. Sure. Mm-hmm. It was a both and. Never compromising on the reality of Jesus, the reality of of salvation and transformation by 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 faith alone through the grace of God alone. Never questioned those things. So I was like, I grew up in church, but I think I was probably twenty when I first heard the term Calvinist and looked into it and I I first looked at Arminianism because I knew that Calvinism was in response to Arminianism and I read that and I was like yeah that doesn't sit right with me and then I read Calvinism I'm like that that doesn't sit right with me either and I was like I just I guess I'm a heretic because <laughs> for a long time like I didn't have a bucket for it like I like I don't know what this fits in as it wasn't until several years later that I kind of reconciled hey both these things can be true at the same time and to limit it limits God uh, and it wasn't until I got to know you better, Shelton, that like I was able, like, oh, I'm like not discovering something new. This is good. <laughs> this is how I was brought yeah. up. Yeah. I was brought up was well for you. For, for yeah, you. for me. Like, yeah, you're like, oh, this is this is actually what I. For me, it's always comforting when I find out that somebody way smarter than me a long time ago already had this idea, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, like if I'm reinventing the wheel, then then there's something wrong, right? It might be a square wheel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And yeah. and I, I what it comes down to is and this is this is one of my favorite quotes and this has been attributed to multiple people, but I believe when it comes down to it there was a there was a a Catholic Protestant man yes I'm saying that correctly uh, he was educated in the Jesuit uh, faith and and moved into Protestantism but kind of towed this line between the Protestants and the Catholics like didn't really know what camp he belonged in and uh, and he he was quoted. Uh, and I believe you wrote this down in the uh, as saying this, and this has been attributed to Augustine. This has been attributed to all kinds of different people, but this is the guy I think that if you trace it down, is correct. And I won't even name him because it doesn't matter. But this was his thing, and I think this describes Wesley's view so so well. In essentials, unity. So we're talking, yeah, the essentials of essential faith, essential doctrines. Yep. 
in non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity or love. Yeah. So regardless of whether we degree, disagree on the non-essentials, we're going to have allow freedom in the non-essentials. Where there's, where there's the essentials, we're going to say, yes, we're going to unify on, on the reality of salvation, the atonement. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. But in all of these things that we deal with, charity and love. Mm-hmm. And I think that so encapsulates where Wesley was coming from in looking for that middle way and trying to pursue that idea of a middle way. Yeah. With, with some of my more Calvinist friends, I think they would agree with you, but then they would disagree on what the essentials are. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, there's and, a lot of things and about I essentials. Think, and I yeah, think there would be yeah. a disagreement on what charity and love is. Sure. They would say, no, you, you're, you're following the wrong way. And so it is love and charity for me to confront you in this and correct way. you. Right. Yeah. So again, I don't, I don't look at fundamentalist Calvinists and say, and, and there is a difference between Calvinists and fundamental, like there is a different sure. camp. Yeah. There. There's, and but I would look points at and how many points you yeah, ascribe. But to. I would look at right. those. I would look at those people, and I'm like, I don't think you're necessarily doing this from bad motives. Yeah, right. You know, at worst, I think you're maybe a little misguided, but I think you're committed to the faith. I think you love Jesus, and we'll we'll dish this out in heaven someday, and we'll figure it all out. Again, I think it's best there when you encounter those things to assign charity to someone rather than like saying they have a bad motive yeah and yeah. in all of this yeah well it's and the the classic uh i can't remember who's razor but it's better to assume that somebody's incompetent instead of malicious <laughs> right <laughs> they're, they're, it's much more likely that somebody's just wrong and mistaken than that they're that they're trying to mislead you yeah, right. yeah. um a, a couple moments ago i was talking about like them saying that Ravi Zacharias was going to hell. And, and I said, there, if there is a heaven, there's that he's one of the few people. I didn't mean that. What I <laughs> right, meant right, was, of course. <laughs> heaven is available to all of you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're, you can choose yeah. Christ today. But, right. The Nazarene was, minister saying, saying, if there is a heaven, he's one of the handful. <laughs> no, of I know. <laughs> and after I said it, I was like, whoopsie daisy. I knew it. I knew it. I was meant, though, setting sure. up the argument between sure. the people that say he wasn't going yeah. there and the people that clearly yeah. he is. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Less I be taken out of no, context. No, I get you. We don't so. do we don't do we don't do clips clips here. We just we let try it not all to stand. edit this if we can. That's right. So. Um, I, I, I know we're running a little long here, but I would like, if possible, a little more discussion on uh, the difference between transgression and iniquity. Can you give me some examples? That okay. So that's my. That's something that I've come to understand. I would say it's fairly accurate, though. I would it, say it's fairly accurate. So, okay. Real, I, like, real that, quick. That, that, real quick. So, that jives with me. Like, that feels okay, right, but I want more. This will jive maybe a little further. It says that Christ was wounded for our transgressions, yeah. and he was bruised for our iniquities. Or crushed. Or crushed. Right. Either way. Either way, it works. Right. So, he is wounded by the cutting or going through the skin. A wound is through the skin, right? Yeah. A bruise is under the skin. Yeah. So... In the sacrifice of Christ, he was both cut and bruised. And that means he dealt with the sin, the outward sin, the things that I do out, outwardly, mm-hmm. and the, the inward sin. desire and transgr- the iniquity. Like mm-hmm. my bent away from him, my, that part of me that is at enmity with God was paid for on the cross when he was bruised yeah and when he was wounded it was for my outward transgressions and i think that that was in old testament language it's something that david that david prophesied before before the messiah came but he was he was pointing to that in that my outward sins the things that i've done willfully and 
directly and that can even be sins of the spirit where i've harbored an attitude or a thought pattern that i know and have been confronted with is wrong right okay so even that is an is an outward or an actual sin right but the desire that inner um how how would you say it nate something it that iniquity that that I am I would say, a son. I I am I am in the line of sinful people, right. and we I would say, as humanity are at enmity yeah, with God. The simplest way I would put it is: transgression is the act, iniquity is the why. Right. The and, why you do the thing. Right. The, and right. the pull. You the know. Pull. So like like yeah. David's David's outward sin with Bathsheba was clearly evident. Right. The iniquity was the lust that drew him to her okay. that was coming from within him. Yeah. And and you would agree, like when the people say sin is sin, you, you agree, you just it's reductive. Right. Yeah. So yeah. It's not those, yes, that's but not, it's, it's yes, like, let's clarify. Yeah, it's not like one yes, of those I agree. Yeah. Yes. One of those sin is, is not sin. one sin of those is, is not more serious than the other right. or needing to be like they were equally needing to be taken care right. of at the cross and, and they he was were beaten wounded and and bruised for all of this like right. yeah. it was all it all required payment at the cross yeah okay I, is, i'm not i'm not trying to yeah. diminish the, what the, the reason i wanted to here, ask more about I that i do think it's right. worth parsing because and this is and this is where you get into that issue of the by his wounds were healed mm-hmm. it's not talking about physical healing it's saying healed of this issue of transgression and iniquity. Right. This 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 sickness of sin that has infiltrated humanity by these wounds that he received, our iniquity and our transgressions are healed. Right. That's what it's talking about. And so I'm please don't apply that. The definition of iniquity and transgression. Not that God a can't bit. miraculously no, heal, but he that's just not what he's talking can. about there. Not what's being talked about there. And um, that the, removal of sin can often lead to healing. Uh, also, so too. so like physically, emotionally, spiritual healing yes, does right. take place when you remove sin. Again, correcting our lens in how we see God. Right. Because then we begin to experience what we formerly thought of as wrath and judgment, and we see it as love. As grace and love. And it begins love. to heal us. We allow it to heal us because we've removed our sinful perspective from, from right. this conversation. Right. And if we maintain that sinful perspective, it blocks our ability to be healed physically, emotionally, spiritually. Yeah. Because we are not viewing him and, and his actions towards us as love. Right. Mm-hmm. The reason I, I want to bring it up again is because when we first discussed perfectionism, you you were saying that Nazarenes get accused of this. And then right. a moment later, you're like, I'm going to sound like a Nazarene here. And, and so I was like, OK, is he trying to create a distinction? No, it's it's both sin. Yeah, there are different types of sin, and, but it's still and sin. Even it, it's more than both. Look at all the different words for sin and even the Old Testament understanding of sin and the and the and the New Testament understanding of sin are somewhat different as well in right. even in the words that they're using and the meaning behind it is somewhat different right. and well and jesus even preached it right he's you know the whole you've heard it said but i tell you sections you know where where he says you know you've heard it said you know not to commit adultery but i'm telling you if you've even looked at a woman with lust in your heart you've committed adultery right and there, he there was addressing a, the a higher standard there he was addressing a, the iniquity there is a term regarding like missing the mark which means you were aiming at the target right you were, you were intending to do well 
Like I was shooting the arrow towards a target. I just missed. Missed a little. Yeah. Like my intentions were not wrong, but I did miss the mark, and that gets translated as sin. Right. Yeah. As, and in as the Shakespeare same way, said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Good intentions. Yeah. <laughs> in the same way that rebelliousness, anger, and open hostility towards God, there are there are terms that mean that. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're not the same. And so we don't benefit from the richness of the original text if we never look at it. Yeah. If we just say, you know, 1611 Kings James is all I need. Right. That's fine. You know, if that's all the depth that you want. And right. and that's robbing us of the beauty of going a little deeper. Yeah. yeah. Sorry to you, 1611 King James. No, you're good. But you're good. <laughs> on, the, uh, on the topic of that, going deeper and, and finding more context, um, are either of you guys familiar with Ray Vanderland? I don't that know name sounds familiar to me. I feel like that's a name that my cousin has mentioned. But give me who that is. Um, so he's a guy from Michigan. I don't know what his his denomination background is, but basically he went through seminary uh, and then intended to go like into the workforce, but then had an opportunity to go to Israel and learn at a rabbinical school, yeah. which he wasn't interested in. But because the opportunity was there, he he felt it would be like super Midwestern. He felt it would be rude to turn it down. <laughs> so so he went and basically realized, oh, even though I grew up in church and just finished seminary, I don't know anything about the Bible. Yeah. And so he, he uh, focused on the family, does a lot of work with him. But basically his whole thing is like, I'm going to show you the cultural stuff that you couldn't possibly have known because it's just not in right. your culture. Right. Uh, and it's just really surprising the way some stories that we understand through a Western lens, just like, not that there's not good teaching available through the Western lens, but we just miss a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. And, and that kind of ties back to your 1611 King yeah. James, right? Like, sure, that's and an accurate translation, but there's better translations. We don't have any of the original manuscripts for any of the Bible, but most of the best manuscripts that we've ever discovered, the earliest ones and all of that, like, 80% of the ones that we currently hold something it's somewhere in that percentage have been found in the last hundred years. Yeah. yeah. And so like our arch- archeological discoveries, historical discoveries, the ability to pull information and, and better translate in the original tongue has come such a long way since we originally did it. Right. That I'm, I'm not saying you throw out old tradition at all or, sure. or old ways of translation, but when you lock yourself into one English translation, mm-hmm. that's what you get. You right. you do get a limited scope of what these things mean. And and and, and to Tinsdale's and credit, that was a triumph of literature and and translation oh, for sure. And and absolutely, there's nothing diminishing that because right. they were doing great work with yeah. with everything that they had, and it, it is still a, a great work. Mm-hmm. But it is still translated into English, which is not which is not the the largest spoken language in the world if you pile them all up it might be the largest now but it wasn't necessarily at the time right you know, and, it, so. and it and english lacks some nuances that aramaic and hebrew and latin had simply because they had the cultural context for those nuances yeah and and it doesn't it it does bring a richness to an understanding of all of these issues if you can study some of those original meanings behind it that's uh, and it yeah yeah it is a fact that the nazarenes get you know we parse sin too far in order to say we don't sin anymore which is not a fair criticism at all in my mind but sure 
yeah, it's worth doing. But anyway, I feel like Nate had pretty much wrapped us up and had done a great <laughs> before job before he that, literally before got up got and left his chair. <laughs> but we were pretty well wrapped up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I have no idea what happened in the interim while I was gone. It's okay. Yeah. Thank you guys for sticking with us through this entire discussion. We hope it's been helpful to you and um, yeah, let us know if it's helped you at all or, or if it hasn't, or if you think we're heretics, we'd like to hear that as well. And if they want to tell you why you're wrong, where can they write? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Facebook.com slash the things we say podcast all together or the things we say at mail.com is our email. And Twitter and Instagram, I guess. We haven't updated Instagram in forever. But <laughs> it's at TTWS Podcast. Yes, yes. So if you are searching for us on your favorite pro- podcast platform, the best way i found is to just type in TTWS and hit search. <laughs> because it's a random series of letters that we use in our tags yes that isn't used broadly anywhere so far yeah. but uh, if so you're listening to this you've probably already found us on your favorite podcast yes. yeah yes, but yes. i'm saying like <laughs> you drop your phone in water and you get an android okay, instead sure, sure. <laughs> and you need to find us again i love my android phone <laughs> oh my well anyway guys we will catch you later nelson thanks for joining us again man always yeah. a pleasure always 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 all right we'll see you guys later thanks for joining the conversation today The Things We Say is produced by Nate Ward. Technical direction is provided by Sheldon Stauffer. You can subscribe to The Things We Say on SoundCloud and iTunes. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at The Things We Say Podcast to keep the conversation going. This has been The Things We Say. See you next time.